Howdy, plant friends. Hope you're having an incredible day. For regular listeners, welcome back. Glad you're enjoying the show. For new listeners, my name is Simon Hill and I am the creator of plantproof.com and the Plant Proof Podcast. I just polished off my overnight oats and a blueberry banana smoothie. So, so good. I've been making hemp milk a lot lately. That's what I soaked the oats in. One part hemp seeds to six parts water. And then I throw in a few dates and some vanilla bean, just scraping that out. Plus a pinch of pink salt. It's absolutely incredible. High in protein, high in healthy omega-3 fats. I totally recommend it. And if you want to flavor it, use cacao for chocolate hemp milk or peanut butter powder for peanut butter hemp milk. They are my two favorites by far. And also for the gym heads, <laughs> just joking, for, for my strength and hypertrophy training friends out there, throw in some pea protein to the mix. You'll get a super high protein milk to throw over your oats, over your muesli, or just chug it down after a workout. Beats the milk from cows in every way possible. Earlier this year, I attended the Eating Your Life documentary in New York. I think that was in March or April. Dr. Michelle McMacken actually gave me the heads up it was on and it is a terrific documentary. If you haven't seen it, Google Eating You Alive documentary and see if you can watch it online or on Netflix. At the event, I met Dr. Rob Osfeld, who, as John Joseph calls him, is an absolute badass. This guy is a leading cardiologist in New York and is changing the game. The work he is doing to save lives is nothing short of incredible. And as he says, he would be making more money if he focused on reactive medicine rather than preventive. Dr. Osfeld is the Director of Preventative Cardiology, the Founder and Director of the Cardiac Wellness Program at Montefiore Health System and an Associate Professor of Medicine at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. He did his medical degree at Yale and Ivy League School in Connecticut and then went on to do another seven years of specialized training before realizing that there just had to be some other way other than drugs and surgery to combat chronic disease and in particular cardiovascular disease which is where his interest lied. I love the fact that Dr. Osfeld is he's essentially the bridge between old school medicine and the new kids on the block, the new kids coming through medical degrees now. He is playing a super important role along with the likes of Dr. Michelle McMacken, whom he said he trades like 70 text messages a day with about nutritional medicine. They're good friends. He's playing this super important role in changing the way that doctors approach their patient consults in the United States and abroad. Super important episode. I absolutely loved it and I hope you do too. Dr. Rob Osfeld, thanks for joining me today on the Plant Proof Podcast. Well, thank you so much. It's an honor to be here with you. It's, it's a real pleasure to have someone as esteemed as yourself in the, in the medical world on the show. Just quickly, have you, have you spent much time where we are today down in Chinatown in Manhattan? Well, thank you for your very generous words. I haven't spent enough time. I live on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and it's amazing how like neighborhood centric people can get, or at least I get in uh, New York City. And I don't explore it anywhere near as much as I should. And walking to meet you today, just seeing all the, the open markets with all the fresh vegetables and fruits, 
it's just terrific. So it, I was actually thinking when I came to see, like, I've definitely got to explore more. How, how many blocks did you have to walk to get here? Or did you take a bit of the subway and then walk? Or? Yeah, I took a subway and then I walked. It's a long so, way, right? Yeah, it's actually pretty far. It would have been, I don't even know, probably would have been an hour, yeah. a little over an hour walk. <laughs> Every time I come here, I check you. Yeah, have you got that the health um, app on your phone? You can oh, see yeah, yeah. steps you've done. Every time I come to New York, it just astronomically increases. I think it's like 30,000 steps a day or something. <laughs> yeah, totally. I love that app. Sometimes when I'm, when I'm rounding in the hospital, you know, hospitals are kind of big and they're not super well organized in how they're made. There's a building here stapled onto a building there. So when we're rounding, you know, as you know, there may be a patient on the eighth floor in the building X and the sixth floor in building Y. And I'll always take the stairs and like I'll make, I mean, quote unquote, make our residents and fellows when they're rounding with me, take the stairs with me and we'll be like body by cardiology, you know, or cardiology rounds. And so, yeah, it'll be like 35 flights of stairs and like 10,000 steps by the end of the day. Yeah. It's similar when I'm traveling. I notice that even if I'm going to an airport, because airports are a little bit like that, you deceivingly, you just do a, a ton of steps. Yeah. yeah. Crazy. Now, I know you did your medical degree, correct me if I'm wrong, at Yale. Yeah. Which is for anyone who is unsure where that is, that's in Connecticut, which is north of where we are now in yes. from Manhattan. And it's considered an Ivy League school, right? Yeah. What is we we hear Ivy League all the time and it's it's obviously a prestigious sort of title here in movies and, and whatnot. What does it actually mean? Well, it's uh, it was actually, if I'm remembering correctly, originally started like as a sports league and where they got a bunch of schools together to combine sports. I mean, this is probably I mean, hundreds of years ago. I don't even know exactly. And it was Northeastern schools. And I believe that was its origin. There, there's lots of great, great schools and lots of extremely academically oriented schools. And this group happened to be of that ilk. And over time, maybe because of how old they are, uh, maybe because of maybe they graduated some really impressive people, um, they've taken on an aura of uh, selectivity and academic excellence, along with many other great, great schools across the world. So it, it's a nice, it's a nice label, if you will. But you know, it's like anything. Do with it what you will. You can come from all kinds of schools and do amazing, amazing stuff. Yeah, sure. I think some of the other like Ivy League schools are like Harvard and. Yeah. So there's, there's, um, I think there's like eight, there's like Dartmouth and Princeton and Brown and University of Pennsylvania and, and Harvard and Dartmouth. And I think I'm blanking on one Cornell. Yeah. So. Oh, okay. Before we sort of dive into where you are now and, and what you're doing, you know, all the amazing work that you're doing as a cardiologist with a focus on sort of preventative medicine from, from what I know, I'd love to see what has sort of help shape your passion for this area along the way. Why don't we start by going over where you grew up, what life was like as a youngster, were you part of a typical American family, that sort of thing? Yeah. So I grew up in New Jersey, so it's okay to be jealous. I get that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and I grew up in suburbia in New Jersey and, you know, I feel really lucky, uh, you know, a great, great parents and they're, they're, they're still alive and exposed me to all kinds of wonderful things, but they really didn't know much about nutrition. And so I had a typical Western diet and nothing about nutrition really entered into the calculus. So 
it was typical animal products and vegetable, maybe here or there. Uh, what everyone ate, really. Yeah, basically. So it totally was not on my radar, but there were a couple of sentinel events when I was a kid that sort of shaped my path toward medicine. And so when I was a kid, I had two brothers who died from an incurable disease. So it's uh, me, I'm the oldest. And then I have had a brother, Daniel, a brother, Michael, and my brother, Scott, who is alive and well with three kids. And they had the same disease. The same disease. Wow. Yeah. What's that? It's called Tay-Sachs. It's a genetic disease. My brother and I are lucky. We're not carriers, so we can't have kids with it. Both parents have to be a carrier. It's autosomal recessive. And in a real sort of my simplistic understanding of it is, you know, we all have fatty tissue in our brain and we have enzymes to kind of keep the amount in check, how much you need. But in, in Tay-Sachs, they're missing an enzyme and the fatty tissue grows and grows. It's an incurable d- disease. It takes over the brain and you, you know, slip into a coma and die. Wow. And is that quick? It can take years. Um, it varies. My brother, Daniel, lived to about three and a half. My, my brother, Michael, lived a very short time. There's no cure. And, and there was good prenatal detection. Now it's picked up pretty quickly prenatally. But before then, that, around the time when my brothers were alive, it wasn't uh, much happening. So that really shaped my um, professional path. I, you know, I was very young. I was seven or eight or so when my brother Daniel died. But I remember a number of things and moved me in the direction of wanting to help people kind of along that path and couldn't really articulate it much better then. But I, I really just went down a science kind of pre-med path as I got a little bit older and didn't really deviate that much. I thought other things could be pretty interesting. But uh, medicine was the path for me. And from the first day in college, I was on a pre-med path and off I went. And in terms of sort of other hobbies and interests as a, as a kid and through sort of elementary and, and high school, what were, you, what were you interested in outside of, I guess, you know, researching and studying? Yeah. So um, I really enjoy sports. So I was fortunate to live in a neighborhood with a bunch of kids my age. And so we'd always be out playing like, you know, football or stickball or something like that. So that was really fun. And actually there was the orthodontist, the local orthodontist. If you hit his house on a fly, that was a home run. <laughs> so Dr. Lohner, if you're listening, <laughs> you're love that. <laughs> he knows. We told him. Like, he knows. And I'm good friends with his kids. So yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. But um, fortunately, we did not break so the windows. It's a pretty safe neighborhood to be sort of getting out and about and leaving home and, you know, yeah. riding around the neighborhood. Yeah, I was very lucky. And, and there were, yeah, no issues along those lines. But I think the thing I did the most was, so I, I have asthma and that limited me with sports uh, because when I was a kid, it was like in the dark ages of asthma treatment. Nowadays, like it's, you can really, it's almost complete non-issue, at least for me, but Back then it was, and there weren't good treatments. And by the way, plant-based, even going plant-based later in life helped my asthma get better. But so I would limit me with like team sports with school. So I got into drama actually and did a ton of theater in high school. Uh, it was actually kind of a big thing in my high school. So I got to be in a lot of plays and in college, I was in an acapella group, which was really fun. So I got to you know do that. So those are some things that I did when I was younger that I enjoyed. And when you finally got to Yale, I'm mm-hmm. assuming you still had that sa- the similar sort of diet that you had through high school. Yeah. And was was the course 
everything that you expected and more or did you know what you were going to, you were sort of jumping into? I mean, a, a medical degree is obviously a very extensive course and requires a lot of dedication. Yeah, sometimes I think if people really know what's ahead of them, they may not take that step, <laughs> but it really was. I feel really fortunate to have gone there for medical school. I got to work with incredible people, made some really good friends, but it, it was kind of what I was expecting to learn about the, the physiology and pathophysiology of, of humans and how to begin to think about diagnosing and treating diseases. And it's a, you know, it's a life, learning is a, a lifetime process with anything, including medicine. I believe doctor means to teach in Latin. So it's, it's really a lifetime uh, process, but it, it, yeah, it was kind of, it was what I felt like I was going to get into. It wasn't a, not a huge curveball and not surprising to you. And I'm sure your listeners, I learned in medical school and beyond virtually nothing about nutrition. There was no nutrition unit, like a, a, a course part of it? No, there was no nutrition unit. There was a little bit woven into the curriculum in general, like in biochemistry, they would talk about like vitamin C and a clinical course. They would talk about like some rare deficiencies that like you really don't ever see in the Western world. But were you, were you sort of, I guess, thinking about it? I mean, it's a different time to now, but were there, were there other students or people asking questions in lectures? Like what about food? You know, that quote, food is medicine. Were, were people thinking about it and wondering why isn't this part of the course or it was a different time to now? Well, the quote, let food be thy medicine, medicine be thy food was a well-kept secret. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm sort of being facetious, but no, there were, there was just not much discussion about it. And it's an embarrassment and a blight, I think, on our field, on my awareness at the time. You know, I even took a nutrition course undergrad and I didn't learn about dietary patterns. It was more like, what does vitamin A do? You know, what does vitamin B do? Very reductionist. And so it's a blight on my ability to put the big picture together and on, I think, the medical system, because my experience is no different than any other physician of my you know, contemporary era who went through training. But, I, you know, and I, I think you're being a bit hard on yourself there because you kind of expect jumping into this course that you're going to, everything's going to be covered. Whether it's, whether it's food or not, or, you know, you're going to learn everything about prevention and, and treatment. And it, it does seem like now, I mean, you know, speaking to quite a few people in this area that maybe there's a little bit of a change now and hopefully medical students coming through now are being exposed a little bit more to nutrition. 100% definitely. Times are changing and it's only for the good. Uh, and it's really, it's just really terrific. There's pockets of change all over the place. And I feel fortunate to be a small part of that. So the medical, I work at a hospital called Montefiore and the, the medical school that's part of Montefiore is Albert Einstein College of Medicine. There's about 175 kids in a class. And now as part of their core curriculum during their second year of medical school, I give them a pre preventive cardiology lecture, which is largely about plant-based nutrition. And I've been doing it for about four or five years now. So it's great. It's literally a requirement woven into their curriculum. And are they, are they asking a lot of questions and like soaking it up and, and really seeing, you know, just how important that lecture is? Yeah. You know, interestingly, it's a mixed bag. I get to speak to all kinds of audience, general public, people who have already finished medical school, physicians and all kinds, nurses, RDs. And the medical students are the most critical of the talk. 
which is a, which is good. You want to be that way, but also there's some resistance. So it's kind of like trimodal. Now, the time when I give the talk, they're very focused on an upcoming board exam, the required U.S. board exam. That's a real big deal test. They, they know that plant-based nutrition is not going to be on their boards. So there's a, there's a group in the middle that's interested, but they're not, it's, it's not driving a passion. Their passion at that point is passing the boards. There's a small sliver that absolutely loves it. It was like, why hasn't this been in our curriculum? We'd love it. They want to talk to the school. They want to you know, create interest groups and on and on about growing this to learn more. And they, they've done stuff like that. And then there's a small sliver that's like, why is this even in our curriculum? So, is that because they've sort of just come into the course with that real traditional thinking of medicine? I mean, I do think it's unique for every person, but I, I do think that that's indeed the case. They, they haven't quite mentally made that connection yet, but I'm glad to be able to begin to expose them to that. Like this is sometimes the very first time they've been hearing about this connection, much like my medical experience, medical school and training experience where I didn't hear about that connection. So, I mean, even though there, there's pushback, I'm really happy because it's planting the idea. Okay. So going back to when you graduated yourself from Yale, was it like a four-year course? Yeah. So you graduate and I believe to, to end up, I guess, with a, a cardiologist title and working in cardiology, you would have had to have gone and done further training. Yeah. Is that right? Did you graduate confident, I guess, with your skills to go out there from your undergrad to go out and make a difference? This, that may be more of just like a personality type question. And, and I always feel like I need to know more, that I could be better doing more. So I was uh, really glad that I got to train at Yale, but I, always, I, but I felt like there's so much more I have to learn. I did not finish up med school thinking like, all right, let me add him. So, <laughs> um, but that's maybe more of just a personality type. But so, you know, the way it works in the US is you do four years of college, then you do usually about four years. Med school is four years. Some people do an extra year or so for with varying interests, but four years of medical school. Then you go on and do an internship and residency, which is anywhere between like three and five years. And then people can do a fellowship after that to further specialize. So I went down an internal medicine path. That's like an adult doctor, like a pediatrician for adults. So that in the US is three years after medical school. And then if you want to specialize in an organ like the kidney or the heart, you do a fellowship in that organ system. So after I finished my three years of internship slash residency, then I did a four-year cardiology fellowship specifically in the heart with, and I did a little extra time focusing on prevention and got a master's in epidemiology, which is a study of the prevalence of and risk factors for disease during my cardiology fellowship. So we're talking four years of med school, three years of residency, four years of, yeah, yeah. (laughs) and walking out not knowing about plant-based nutrition, 11 years. Wow. But in the, in the epidemiology type of studies, where it was, was nutrition sort of looked at? It was uh, some. The, it, indeed, there, there are lots of studies like that. And, but the coursework that I took wasn't really focusing on those specific studies. It was more methodologic. And you know, I, I left knowing that a Mediterranean-style diet is pretty good. And you know, compared to a Western diet, there's no denying that, yeah. you know, it's, it's, I look at diet as a continuum. It could be horrendous. It could be awesome. It yeah, could be anything spectrum. in between. Yeah. So that was the most I really knew about a dietary pattern, but 
I couldn't even really quite define what a Mediterranean. I don't know if anybody really can. There's, there's like a gazillion countries around the Mediterranean. So it's kind of. Yeah, they seem to all just get lumped under this one umbrella. Right, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So in, in terms of that fellowship, that's interesting. So is that sort of a mixture of some theory, but also practical? Like were you in, were you doing things sort of hands-on as well? Yes, exactly. So residency and fellowship is very practical. You're in the weeds, you're on call, you're taking care of patients, you're running codes, you're doing CPR, you know, treating anything from diabetes to pneumonia to a heart attack. And then when you get into fellowship, it's more cardiac issues, you know, heart attacks, heart failure, invasive treatments from the, you know, talking to someone who's got borderline high blood pressure all the way to someone who's on the verge of death across the spectrum of cardiac issues. And so it's a really great uh, experience. And there's obviously, a, there, there's a lot of didactic teaching along the way with that as well. I'm presuming that during that time, most of the focus was on pharmaceutical, like using pharmaceuticals, prescribing drugs for patients and or, and or surgery. Were they the types of things that patients were going through? That was the primary focus. You know, how do you treat their high cholesterol? Well, it's a medication. Lipidoral. Yeah, something, yeah, some kind of statin, something like that. There's some kind of medication. And, you know, we, people would pay some degree of lip service to healthy lifestyle, but like it would be like a pat on the back when the patient's on the way out. Okay, don't forget to have a healthier lifestyle. Like, what does that even mean? Yeah. I find that at the end of a lot of scientific papers. Yeah. Just at the end. And we re- also recommend lifestyle changes. <laughs> right. And it's so interesting because if you read the guidelines, and guidelines are these statements from major medical organizations like the American College of Cardiology. And I'm sure in Australia they have their similar organizations like that. And if you read these guidelines on high blood pressure and prevention, high cholesterol, whatever, they all start lifestyle change. That's like the first paragraph, but yet somehow that just gets skipped. What does it actually mean? Like they don't go into it? Like- well, they, they do. They'll talk about, and some of them will really, you know, they'll have a couple of solid paragraphs about eating more healthfully, what they can recommend, or they'll say, okay, you know, please see our, our compendium document that really takes a deep dive into healthier lifestyle. So it's out there. It just... I don't know. It doesn't get this, the kind of attention that I think it deserves. So currently in, in America for healthy heart, like what, what's the healthy heart diet that those associations are recommending? Yeah. So it's a, a handful of things. So they would recommend a Mediterranean style diet with more vegetables, more fruits, which is great, uh, fewer animal products. And if you're going to have animal products, the healthier version of those like fish or something there's the DASH diet, which is more specifically geared for hypertension, but really is, has broad benefit. It is, is a similar ilk, the more vegetables, more fruits, whole grains, and fewer animal products. So that's mm-hmm. really great. Those would be the, the two, I think, most common ones. There's the American Heart Association diet as well, which is pretty similar to a DASH recommendation. So they fall under that category. So that's what they're recommending. But like, when's the last time you heard a lot of people kind of follow any big recommendation like that. I mean, like people are doing their own thing. And like, if you just say, oh, you know, we recommend you eat this way without a lot of infrastructure and support around that, it just doesn't happen. And that's, that's the issue. It's not happening. Okay. So, so people are sticking just to that standard American diet. I know that what you recommend I'm presuming is slightly different to what those recommendations are, the DASH and the Mediterranean. I'm keen to explore that in a minute, but firstly, your own diet and your own sort of view of food, how did that change 
after you sort of finished up the fellowship mm-hmm. and you were a cardiologist, how did that change? Like what inspired you? What, what sort of provoked that thought? You know, so I finished up all my training and I come down to New York City to start to practice and work as a cardiologist. And I'd always been interested in prevention. And so I started doing all the things I was trained to do, medications, procedures, which can be very important. And also, you know, recommending people have a Mediterranean style diet. And so people got a little bit better, but they didn't get a heck of a lot better. And I'm like, I didn't go into medicine for people to get a teeny bit better here or there. I wanted real transformational change. So I was getting pretty disillusioned. I remember taking care of this one case, like I was rounding on a Sunday morning in the hospital and I was like, oh, I'm feeling sorry for myself being in the hospital on Sunday morning, but it's part of the job. So this guy, you know, had come in the night before and he'd had a heart attack and the interventional team came in at about three in the morning and they put a stent in to open up the acute blockage and saved his life. And I'm sitting there thinking, and that's wonderful. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, it seems to me like the only group of docs under my myopic cardiology umbrella, which is kind of broad, at least within medicine, that are saving people's lives are the interventional team. And that's dealing with the tail end of the disease, like long after it's developed. I'm like, that's just not right. There's got to be something before. And, you know, medications and encouraging maybe Mediterranean style diet could be helpful, but I wasn't seeing substantial changes. And so it was right around then that somebody handed me the China study. And being a myopic cardiologist, I go right to the middle section. There's just like a few pages about, about cardiology. I'm like, wow, this really makes sense. And so I started to learn more about it. I used to run cardiology grand rounds at Montefiore for a bunch of years. So we were really lucky, you know, Esselstyn and, and Campbell and Willett and people like that came down and spoke to us. And so then one thing led to another and started our cardiac wellness program at Montefiore with the goal of preventing and reversing disease with a plant-based diet. And I say disease, not just heart disease, because I mean, yeah, it's good for your heart, but it's good for you for dozens and dozens of other reasons. And it's just been amazing. It's completely rejuvenated me as a doc. It's why- What year was that? The program started about 2011, I think. Okay, so it's been around, uh, you know, long enough now to to be sort of seeing some data and and yeah. tangible changes, and it's been incredible. We we literally have patients crying tears of joy in our office because they feel so much better. Like nobody did that before. I mean, like when I write them a script for whatever statin, like nobody cries tears of joy. Like, ooh, cool, I could take a statin. So it's it's really been uh, it's been great. So I guess. The, the crux of that program based around changing their diet. What are, what, what are your recommendations? I don't like to use the word optimal diet, but just for, you know, being simple, what, what is the optimal diet that you're recommending? Sure. And along the lines of what you're saying, like, I don't want perfection to be the enemy of good. I'll take what I can get. And a number of the patients who come and see me, I work in the Bronx, it's an inner city, the, the health there is terrible. It's the least healthy county in all of New York. There are 50 counties. By far, it's the least healthy. And when I mentioned plant-based nutrition to them, they look at me like I'm from Mars. They've never heard this. So it's interesting. And the optimal, to me, the optimal diet would be a whole food plant-based diet. And I also encourage my patients to avoid oil. Uh, I don't fully go to the mat on that one because I don't 
think that the evidence is quite as strong as for the other things. But for me, it would be whole food, plant-based, no oil. And that's, that's what it is. And how, you know, you're sort of alluding that some of them have are a little bit shocked in their reaction. Yeah. How are they going at, at adopting this new way of eating? And I'm assuming that you're using plant-based rather than the word vegan because that would even probably shock people and be a little more confronting again. Yeah. I try to steer clear of the word vegan uh, for all sorts of, of reasons, but it's a mixed bag. And I see usually see people enriched with disease, unfortunately. So it's not like they're like a perfectly healthy 22-year-old who isn't really worried about high blood pressure they may develop in 15 years. I see people with heart disease, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, all sorts of issues. And what I do is I tell them that I think this would be the optimal path for them. I, I mentioned you know, I've been a cardiologist now for about 15 years and outside of a medical emergency, like somebody gets shot and has to be put back together again, I've never seen anything come close to the breadth and depth of benefits that a plant-based diet provides. And so I ask them, you know, do you want to be healthier? Usually they say yes. And I try to find out why, like what's their particular hook? Like, you know, do they want to walk their kid down the aisle? Do they want to look good at a reunion? Do they want to come off their diabetes medication? Whatever it might be for them, I try to find that hook. And we will talk about how plant-based nutrition can address that and other, other issues. I give a very specific recommendation about how I would like them to eat. I reinforce it with handouts that are very specific with checklists, you know, three servings of green leafy vegetables each day, check, 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 and on and on it goes. I have three levels. Level three does incorporate some animal products and that level one is fully whole food, plant-based, no oil. And I aspire for everyone to go to level one, but- There's a transition. Yeah. So not every, you know, not everyone's ready to do that. So, you know, you pitch to your batter. And then I have these Saturday morning sessions that are about four hours long. They're modeled after Dr. Esselstyn's where we take a deep, deep dive into the how and why of plant-based nutrition. I speak, a nutritionist speaks. We serve lunch. We have the patients come with a friend or significant other. So to help them reinforce it, I don't charge patients for it. I fund it all through donations. That's incredible. Oh, thank you. I mean, there's just a very large indigent patient population. So if I charged even five bucks, like, a lot of people couldn't come. So I want to democratize this stuff as much as possible. And then I follow up with people over time. So those are sort of our, the steps that we take to try to help people change their behavior. And I mean, I'm not by any means perfect at it. And if anybody's got some secret sauce about behavior change, like, please tell me, <laughs> like, I would love to know that. We'll have your contact details in the show notes. What about when the, when the patients ask you, I'm presuming some of them say, well, what's doc, what's wrong with good quality meats or good quality eggs. What, how do you explain that? And, and I guess also for the listeners, why from the science and the literature, why are you recommending to go to Whole Foods away from these animal products? Yeah, it's for a, it's for a whole bunch of reasons. And the first reason is really from a 500 foot view. The longest living populations the, with the most centenarians as you and I'm sure your listeners know well, looked at by the blue zones, you know, eat almost exclusively a plant-based diet. Meat is a side thing, maybe for special occasions, but it's largely a plant-based diet. And of course they do other things, exercise and have community support. But from a 500 foot view, the longest living populations in the world eat almost exclusively 
a plant-based diet. You can look at populations that, like, for example, from Japan or China, maybe from a number of decades ago, because their dietary patterns are changing now. But if you took someone from that population at the time, much lower rates of heart disease and other sorts of issues, and then you move them to the Western world, we ruin them or ruin them within a generation or two. That's not evolution. That's lifestyle. And that's a substantial change in diet, adopting the Western diet away from their traditional diet. So there's that kind of study. Then there are more basic science test tube studies that look at mechanistic issues like trimethylamine oxide being higher when you eat more animal-based food. And that's being associated with a good bit of mechanistic detail about being worse for cardiovascular disease, new 5GC, which promotes inflammation, endotoxins, other things that promote inflammation, cholesterol, fats. So there's a variety of different mechanistic reasons that are different, the mechanistic profiles that are different between animal-based foods and plant-based foods that I think form a pathophysiologic bedrock behind these interesting large population studies. And these population studies, it's not just like one population one time, it's like all across the globe. So, you know, it would be, if it was just one place, you're like, well, but it's multiple places and multiple studies with different investigators and different age groups and different ethnicities. And that theme persists. And then there's, of course, interventional studies as well, where uh, if you modify your diet in a variety of different ways, eating more toward a plant-based diet is healthier. And, And we could take a deeper dive into these kinds of studies, but I feel from that 500 foot view, fully backed by uh, the evidence. I do think eating nearly a whole food plant-based diet, I mean, if you're like 98% versus 100%, we don't really know the difference long-term. We do short-term, which actually brings me to, I want to circle back to that in a second. But like, you know, I, I think that that's the optimal dietary plan path now. And I should say, I have no vested interest. Like I have no book to sell. I have no product to sell. In fact, practicing the way I practice, I earn less, but I think it's the right thing to do. So that's why I do it. So I think that that's the optimal dietary path. And let's prove that wrong. And and circling back to the 98% versus the 100%, longer term, we don't honestly know, but we do know that one unhealthy meal, think about this, like when you're going to have dinner tonight, like one unhealthy meal, like, you know, with the, the fatty meats and the hash browns and stuff, one unhealthy meal can worsen blood vessel function for up to about six hours. Wow. Which brings, that's, that's great work by Robert Vogel. And he took young, healthy men and he fed them either like whole grain cereal or a fatty meal. And then he looked at blood vessel function. The young, healthy men ate like a whole grain cereal. Blood vessel function is normal. He looked at the blood vessel function in those same young, healthy men when he fed them like a fatty meal and it was worse. And it stayed bad for about six hours. Then it went back to normal. But then, of course, it's lunchtime. And that's, you know, chicken parmesan and dinner. And that's pizza. And the next day, maybe scrambled eggs or something. And it's just on and on, meal after meal. It's like you're pounding away at those endothelial cells that line your blood vessels. And it's no wonder that they kind of give up over time. So the theory is that's having a compounding effect. Exactly. But it's not just blood vessel function from one unhealthy meal. It's also lung function. Asthmatics are more likely to get readmitted to the hospital because of spasm, bronchospasm in their lungs, shortness of breath, 
after eating more animal-based foods. So it's not, and, and just after one meal, it can make that worse. So it's not just blood vessel function. It's not just lung function. It's also liver function. Now there's this thing called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which now in the Western world is the most common cause of liver failure leading to liver transplants more than alcohol. All right, well, so what? Well, if you eat an animal-based meal, your liver metabolically transiently looks like non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. It goes away after a few, few hours, but that's one meal. But it's not just your blood vessel function. It's not just your lung function. It's not just your liver function. It's also your red blood cells. The red blood cells are in your blood and they carry oxygen around and they have a bunch of other uh, things that they do. And they're usually very flexible because they have to get through small capillaries. And, but one unhealthy meal makes them change shape from a flexible thing to being very spiky. Who cares? Well, when they're spiky like that, they can poke potentially, this is the hypothesis, teeny holes in the, the very inner lining of the blood vessel, making them more prone to crack or rupture, causing a heart attack. And some people have speculated that that's why after like a really unhealthy meal, there's a little bit of an uptick in risk for a cardiovascular event. So one unhealthy meal of impacting all of those things, it's really quite impressive. So, you know, if you're a healthy 25-year-old, you know, probably no harm, no foul. But for my patients who are enriched for disease and maybe getting chest pressure from a cholesterol blockage when they walk 75 feet, that could be quite clinically meaningful for them. Let's zoom in a little bit more on, you mentioned saturated fat and cholesterol. Mm. And I guess in particular, coronary artery disease and, and looking at heart attacks. I know I attended the Eating You Alive premiere here in New York in March or April and the, you had some questions afterwards that were asked. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they were just around, I guess, the etiology, like how does the, the atherosclerosis or narrowing of the artery, how does that develop from a physiological point of view? And how does dietary cholesterol, how does fat and, and how, let's, let's really break fat down and talk about the different types of fat rather than just demonizing the, the whole sure. thing because there's different types and you've alluded to that. How does that pathology develop? So first thing to know is your audience probably knows this, but at least in the US, about 65% of 12 to 14 year olds have very early signs of cholesterol disease in the blood vessels that feed their hearts with blood. Now, I'm pretty sure most of your listeners are older than 14, I'm guessing. It's just so common. And we know that from pathology studies of kids who died for other reasons. The way it starts is there are these cells called the endothelial cells that line the inner wall of the blood vessel. And they're one cell layer thick and they're really important. They make something called nitric oxide, which helps blood vessels dilate and it's anti-inflammatory. But those endothelial cells can become damaged from a variety of things, whether it's a toxic Western diet, inflammation, pollution, smoking, those cells can get damaged. And when that happens, then cholesterol particles that are flowing in your blood can burrow across the wall, across those endothelial cells into the wall of the blood vessel. And you can think of it like if you look at a wall, like in an apartment, maybe they have wallpaper. And then behind it is the wall. So then those cholesterol particles burrow under the wallpaper. And now they're in the wall of the blood vessel, exactly where you don't want them. And when they get in there from inflammation, they can become oxidized. 
who cares? When that happens, they kind of function like a splinter. And you know, like if you have a splinter in your finger, it's all red and inflamed and painful. Well, it's the same kind of thing, except in the wall of your blood vessel. And so there's a whole inflammation process there. And what that does is it calls in more cells to the wall of the blood vessel to try to gobble up that splinter, creates more inflammation, more oxidative stress in that local area to try to quiet down that inflammation, damages those endothelial cells more, more cholesterol particles burrow across, and then that plaque, little teeny plaque, begins to grow and grow. Is that a specific type of cholesterol particle? or It's the oxidized LDL particle. So that low-density lipoprotein, LDL, uh, becomes oxidized, and that's particularly toxic. And interestingly, there's evidence that when you eat a plant-based diet, it is more difficult for the LDL particle to become oxidized. So yet another way that a plant-based diet may protect you from cardiovascular disease, making it harder for those particles to become oxidized. So when you have that oxidized LDL particle in the vessel wall, more inflammation, the plaque grows and grows, the endothelial cell gets sicker and sicker, the vessel gets sicker every second of every day. It's not just like you're fine, you're fine, you're fine, then boom, some random Tuesday afternoon you have a heart attack. You are very gradually getting sicker and sicker. There is also this thing called the fibrous cap, which when this inflammatory process is there, kind of grows over the vessel, a little bit over the wallpaper. And that fibrous cap really is the only thing protecting or separating all of that cholesterol grumus from the blood that's flowing in the middle of the artery. Now, you never want that blood in the artery to get blocked because it feeds all sorts of parts of your body, your brain, your heart, your legs, your sexual organs. But what can happen is with all that inflammation, all that oxidative stress over time, that fibrous cap gets thinner and thinner and weaker and weaker. And the blood is rushing by each day with some degree of sheer force. And who knows, you know, maybe those spiky red blood cells after an unhealthy meal, that fibrous cap can crack. And when that crack happens, that cholesterol grumus in the wall of the blood vessel then gets exposed to the blood and it makes blood clot. And if it clot, and sometimes it's like a tree falling in the forest, you don't even see or hear it. Other times it blocks off the whole vessel. Um, and when you eat unhealthfully, your blood is thicker and more likely to clot. It's just yet another strike against you. It's like going up to bat when you're, the count's 0, 0 and 2 and you're starting there. So it makes your blood more likely to clot. And so anyway, then that cholesterol grumus gets exposed to the blood. It can clot off the whole artery. And when that happens, that's a heart attack. That's an emergency. You want a stent right away. So that's kind of how that process happens. And it begins. So when, you, when, you, when someone puts a stent in, they go in, they remove that cholesterol that's come out of the wall like the, and then clotted and remove that clot. And then the stent holds the vessel back open. More or less. Basically what they do, it's like a snowplow, really. After a big snowstorm, they go in because you, you can, the catheterization, they thread a catheter either through a blood vessel in the wrist or groin up to the heart and they inject contrast dye into the artery and they can see exactly where that block or clot happened. They'll thread a wire across it and then they'll just open up a stent, shoving all that plaque and junk out of the way. It's just like a snowplow. And a little bit of it goes down distally. You know, you do your best to protect that, but you can't get all of it. 
And so it just basically like a snowplow moves it out of the way. And so that's how the stent, but you want that right away if you're having a big heart attack, no question. So I'm interested in these, these LDL particles that are the, the cholesterol that you're saying is responsible for getting in, in between the lining of the artery. So firstly, let's look at like a statin, like a Lipitor. How is that, how is that acting on, on that? Statins, and we'll, we'll circle back to dietary cholesterol and dietary fats for sure. So what a statin does, there's a whole bunch of different ones. They're, they're actually exquisitely effective medications. And like any medication, they have side effects and so not appropriate for everyone. But if you read the internet, like they're the worst thing that's ever happened in the history of time, which is really quite irresponsible because for the appropriate person, it's very helpful. And, you know, we don't look at prevention as either or it's belt and suspenders. It's a healthier lifestyle is the cornerstone, but medications can be very appropriate in certain settings. And so what a statin does is it blocks the rate limiting step. It's an HMG-CoA reductase inhibitor and blocks the rate limiting step in cholesterol formate, LDL cholesterol formation. And so your cholesterol levels fall quite a bit. And it's been shown in a variety of studies that, that af- with that uh, impact of the cholesterol or pill, it can improve the health of the blood vessel wall, perhaps in some cases shrink the plaque a little bit, make you less likely to have a heart attack, less likely to have a stroke, profoundly lower LDL cholesterol levels. So, I mean, we're, sometimes they can lower them between 30 and 50%, uh, which can be quite meaningful uh, for some people. Even without dietary changes. Even without dietary changes. Most of the studies in statins actually are in people who are not having the kind of lifestyle I'd want someone to have. So that brings up the important question of like, well, how does it, do we know for unequivocally for sure that it's helpful in people who are truly eating a whole food plant-based diet, no oil? We don't have a lot to go on. You know, we have anecdotal case series here, case report there, not as much to go on. So you just have to extrapolate from the best amount of evidence that you have because you have to make a decision to protect that person. And so I will extrapolate from studies of hundreds of thousands of people presumably with a variety of dietary patterns that just aren't outlined in the study. So you don't know they're the benefit. And I will extrapolate that to my patients who've had a heart attack and who are beginning to adjust their lifestyle. And anecdotally, the benefits that I've seen or that, that have been reported in big, big studies have also been replicated in my smaller anecdotal experience. And I feel very comfortable given the safety profile of having patients eat that way. So those medications can lower cholesterol levels, also lower inflammation a little bit too, which can be quite helpful. Circling back now to dietary saturated fat, dietary cholesterol, and I guess looking at foods in our diet, which can worsen the amount of the the sort of bad LDL particles and foods that can help reduce them and improve our arterial health. Right. So that's a really important point. And the first point, which I know that you know is, we want to be careful not to get too reductionist because people eat food. You know, like if you're hungry, you're not like, oh man, I could really go for a bowl of saturated fat right now. You're like, I want to fill in the blank. I want a bowl of oatmeal or something like that. And that food has all sorts of things in it, not just saturated fat or just cholesterol. So in terms of cholesterol, dietary cholesterol does raise blood levels, but the strength of that relationship is not as strong 
as for saturated fat. And there are a whole bunch of different kinds of saturated fats, but a number of them do raise LDL bad cholesterol levels. Not only do they, they can increase synthesis, they also may decrease their excretion as well. So it's sort of a double whammy. Not only that, but the saturated fat can increase the ability of the blood to, to want to clot, increase inflammation. So it really can come at you from a number of negative directions, but there are a variety of types of saturated fat. So some are worse than others for different metrics, but you know, on the whole, they will raise LDL cholesterol levels. There's the Hegstead equation that's been described to describe that relationship. So saturated fat will do it more than directly will dietary cholesterol. And also with dietary cholesterol, your cholesterol receptors inside will get saturated pretty quickly. So these studies where someone eats like, you know, four servings of a high cholesterol food versus 12 servings of a high cholesterol food, they're really geared to show what the investigators are trying to show. It's a little inappropriate because when you eat like four servings versus 12, like, oh, cholesterol levels in the blood didn't change. So dietary cholesterol doesn't matter. Well, you know, you've saturated your cholesterol receptors by the time you're eating those four big servings of cholesterol-laden food. The interesting question would be none versus four servings. And then the handful of studies that do that, it does raise the cholesterol levels, not to the same degree as say a saturated fat would, but it's a little misleading. I think when people do those kinds of, you know, gerrymandered studies, if you will. So it does, it does raise it, but not uh, eating dietary cholesterol does raise it, not to the same degree as as would uh, saturated fat, but it's a complicated milieu. I mean, there's a genetic component to cholesterol levels and that matters. There's a dietary component and then it kind of gets complicated as well. Other lifestyle components, not dietary related. I mean, smoking to my knowledge doesn't necessarily raise cholesterol levels, but it makes your, it can make your LDL particles more oxidized and more atherogenic. Exercise can lower cholesterol particles and be helpful for other reasons. So we want to be careful not to be too reductionist about it. But, it, but yes, so saturated fat can both increase LDL cholesterol levels, decrease uh, their uh, clearance, increase inflammation, make blood more likely to clot. Dietary cholesterol can raise LDL blood cholesterol, not as much and only to a point because you'll saturate your, your receptors. Where does trans fats fit into this? Trans fat is a, another very unhealthy kind of fat. I'm not like an expert in the, the structure of it, but it, my understanding is like it's like super easy to store. Like some of the older margarines, I guess, were made out of trans fat. It could just basically sit on a shelf for like, you know, forever. I, for all, I'm not really sure, but for a while, it's just, it makes from a, a manufacturing and selling standpoint, it makes life a lot easier for people doing that. But it raises LDL cholesterol, it's, um, it can promote inflammation that it can make you more prone to be ha- to have diabetes and has been clear. So there's a mechanistic reason for why it's bad for you and clearly outlined in well-done epidemiologic studies that having more of that is associated with worse cardiovascular outcomes. And from like bigger picture epidemiology studies, like when a town gets rid of their trans fat, like cardiovascular rates go down. Yeah, wow. That one you really want to steer clear from. And then if you get into more saturated fats, that's where, you know, so you're right. You don't want to, the devil's in the details. And with fats, the trans and saturated fats 
I don't believe are your friends. And the guidelines, guidelines recommend not having trans fats or like less than 1% or something. And they also still, the Dietary Guidelines of America, keep less than 10% of your calories from saturated fat. And it's important to remember that when you eat the saturated fat, it's usually in some kind of animal product that has a variety of other bad aspects, new 5GC, TMAO, heme iron, endotoxin, that also makes it bad. But so they recommend less than 10%. But saturated and unsaturated fat, the, the new dietary guidelines in the US from 2015 or so, they got rid of a top number for fat. And the devil's, of course, in the detail. When you compare mono and polyunsaturated fats to saturated fat, they're actually much better. There's a variety of studies where if you remove 5% of your calories from saturated fat and replace it with 5% of calories from unsaturated fat, people do better. They have fewer cardio. That's like an olive oil. That's like a canola oil. They do better compared to saturated fat. And that's another reason why there's so much confusion about saturated fat. Because much like these sort of misleading cholesterol studies where, okay, I'm going to ask you to eat a truckload of cholesterol or two truckloads of cholesterol. And you know what? It doesn't make a difference because you're eating a truckload of cholesterol. It's a limiting. limiting exactly. And so and, and that's misleading. And for saturated fat studies, it can be misleading because you can ask, well, instead of what? So if you say, well, we got rid of saturated fat, but look, people are still sick and dying well, what are they eating instead of the saturated fat? Like if you replace it with razor blades, like they're clearly not going to do better. I mean, I'm obviously making a ridiculous example here, but if you replace the saturated fat with simple refined carbs, simple like sugar cookies, people don't do better. And that's why it looked like in a number of these big analyses that saturated fat wasn't so bad. They didn't say it was good, but they didn't say it was bad. But that's because what are you eating it instead of? And then they can draw conclusions and say saturated fat's not worse than carbohydrates. And they, you know, like in these sugar studies, whereas carbohydrates is such an umbrella term, it's very different to complex unrefined carbohydrates, right? Oh, exactly right. So there's like a whole grain piece of bread, a true whole grain versus a sugar cookie. And those are worlds apart. They're just other parts of completely different. So if you replace saturated fat with refined sugar cookies, okay, shocker, you're not going to do better. But if you, if you replace saturated fat with a similar amount of calories from unsaturated fat, you do better. Or whole grains, you do better. And a whole bunch of epidemiologic studies support that. So you're right. So when we say fat, that can mean all sorts of things. When you say carbs, that can mean all sorts of things. So the devil is in the details. And with carbs, lots of studies show that whole grain, cereals, you know, people do better eating that, even less diabetes eating that. You know, fruit and vegetables are carbs. Uh, and I, wouldn't, I don't think anybody's going to argue, well, maybe some people would, that eating fruits and vegetables are healthful. And interestingly, actually, I want to circle back to that point. But if you replace the saturated fat with uh, simple carbs, it's worse, unsaturated fat, is better and whole grains is better. Uh, vegetables and fruits are, are carbs also. And there was a really interesting study done by this guy, Dr. Du in China, where they looked at like 450,000 people and something like that. And they had like, I don't even know, three and a half or 4 million person years of follow-up. And just for context, if you follow me in a study for one year, 
That's one person year of follow-up. They had like 3.5 million, okay? And so what they asked is, what happens if you eat more fresh fruit? Is it good? Is it bad? Well, I don't know. Let's study it. Let's look. So when they looked over a number of years, and it turns out the more fresh fruit you ate, the better you did. The less, the, f- the fewer heart attacks, the fewer strokes, your blood pressure went down, your blood sugar went down. Yes, your blood sugar went down eating more fruit. I'm personally kind of getting tired of hearing about how fruit causes diabetes. But then they, got, they did an even cooler study because then they looked at their cohort. There, there were about 30,000 people in their cohort that had diabetes at the beginning before they even started looking at them with the fresh fruit consumption. And it turns out the more fresh fruit you ate and you had diabetes at the start, the better you did. These uh, type two diabetes. These are sorry. These are type two. Yeah. Yeah. The better you did. Thirty thousand people, uh, and then of course you were for like the four hundred and fifty thousand or so that they had that didn't have diabetes at the get go. Eating more fresh fruit was associated with lower incident diabetes, so you were less likely to get diabetes. So carbs is a really broad term. You know, it's kale and it's a sugar cookie, and those things are clearly different. And there's a cool study by Satija. And what Satija did, this isn't about 200 or so thousand people with about 3 million person years of follow-up, I believe. And he looked at that devils in the detail question. And they first, they looked at a plant-based diet versus an animal-based diet. And if you ate a plant-based diet, you did better. The the more toward a plant-based diet, you did better. They had a a degree. So the more toward a plant-based diet you ate, the better you did. But then they're like, you know what? A sugar cookie is not the same thing as kale. So let's look at it. What if you ate an unhealthy plant-based diet, meaning a sugar cookie diet, or a healthy plant-based diet, meaning a kale diet? And well, it turns out that if you ate a healthy plant-based diet, you did even better. But in their study, if you ate an unhealthy plant-based diet, you actually did a little bit worse than an animal-based diet. So sugar cookies and things like that, piling up on that, you know, may be compelling for people for environmental and for ethical reasons. But I wouldn't embrace that for health reasons. Okay. If we <laughs> have a lot of information. Sorry. Super, no, 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 no. It's, it's, it's fantastic information. I just want to double back to the cholesterol and saturated fat contributing to the health of our artery and um, causing these, these blockages that we spoke about. But if we look from, a, a, I guess, a practical point of view, I've got two questions. We spoke about the fact that moving from saturated fats to unsaturated fats is is a good thing for cholesterol and and artery health. Practically speaking, what are your recommendations for getting these unsaturated fats in your diet? Of course, we're looking at this with a really micro lens because most foods out there that have unsaturated fat as a whole food also have saturated fat in them. So can can you just go through that at a practical level, what you recommend? In terms of what I practically recommend, to be honest, I don't even dive into that degree of of detail when it comes to recommending things to patients. I recommend a whole food plant-based diet. I don't get into macronutrients because I think that I will confuse patients. And I'm extremely convinced by the myriad of studies, whether they be basic science, translational, epidemiologic, interventional studies, thousands of these things, studying thousands and thousands of patients, 
having inc- incremental benefits. So I feel very reassured when I recommend a patient have a whole food plant-based diet. When I specifically recommend, this would be like level one. You know, not everybody's ready to do this. And we, we give them some support. And we, other, we have other aspects of our program that maybe we'll talk about. We have an inpatient arm and a research and an educational arm as well. But what I'll do is I, I'll, I say, please have three servings of green leafy vegetables each day three servings of fruit each day, preferably one of those servings being berries, three servings of other vegetables each day, lots of herbs and spices, cinnamon, turmeric, cloves, have at it, shake it into all kinds of stuff. Whole grain breads, not the white breads, but truly whole grain breads. And be careful about the ingredients. If it says like enriched wheat flour, or bleached wheat flour, that is white bread with a tan. So, you know, be careful about that. Brown rice, I recommend not white rice. Other whole grains like quinoa, spelt, have added oats, exactly. Beans are great. Lentils are great. I particularly love lentils. They're like nutrition rock stars. And like cost per like nutrition is like off the charts with lentils. So beans, lentils, chickpeas, peas, tofu. I'd say, you know, have a sweet potato, bake, not fried. You know, don't use sour cream, butter, but hot sauce, salsa, mustard. If you want on a baked potato, have at it. A big green leafy salad each day but I prefer uh, no salad dressing and I prefer no oil. Now, obviously there are workarounds that, but uh, you know, if I'm, I'm having a relatively quick conversation, but I'll say, but on your salad, you know, you can use hot sauce, salsa, mustard, vinegar, lemon, lime, beans, raw nuts, you know, particularly walnuts, not a lot because they begin to become calorically dense, but a small handful, walnuts in particular, because they have a really good omega-3, omega-6 ratio. And for my patients without heart disease, I'll recommend avocado as well, help knowing that they're going to be getting good fats there. None of the junk food like cookies, chips, cakes, candy. I also recommend they have two heaping tablespoons of hemp seeds, chia seeds, or ground flaxseed meal each day to help them get the ALA that will hopefully be converted to omega-3s. And uh, then I say, if it has a face or comes from something with a face, don't eat it. So I recommend, you know, not having, I recommend not having chicken. I recommend not having Turkey, fish, I recommend not having. Now, fish is indeed better than red meat, but it's relative. And, you know, there's a really cool study by Song in the archives of internal medicine or JAM internal medicine, where they replaced 3% of calories from animal-based food with 3% of calories from plant-based food. It's an epidemiologic study. So is that bad? Is it good? Is it bad? What is it? Turns out if you replace just 3% of your calories from animal-based protein with 3% of calories from plant-based protein, you do better. And it was a big enough study. They could look at all sorts of different kinds of animal proteins, like whether it's processed red meat, which of course the World Health Organization has now described as a class one carcinogen, meaning it causes cancer. Class one carcinogen is the same category as plutonium. Now you're not going to get cancer after one processed meat sandwich. It's not the same degree of carcinogenicity but it adds up over time. So, you know, processed red meat, red meat, poultry, dairy, eggs, all of those things in that study, if you replace just 3% of those calories with 3% of calories from plant-based protein, you live longer. It's not just like fewer strokes, which is an important thing. It's living longer. That's a very small change. So imagine you make a bigger change. Exactly. Exactly. So then I'll recommend, I recommend not having milk from cows. I'll say, you know, have almond milk, soy milk, oat milk, I recommend patients not have uh, other animal products. I recommend not eggs, cheese, or yogurt because I personally believe that they will do better, I think, based on the evidence, if they don't eat those things. And, and if they're going the sort of 
the the whole way there and they're going straight to your level one, are you are you having them supplement anything? There are two things that I supplement now. One, so eating this way is unbelievably nutrient dense. And I should say, I tell patients, if you're hungry, eat more, have at it, just more of the good stuff. Uh, because it's very nutrient dense. It's not as calorically dense. So they probably have to eat more. More volume. Exactly. So, but it's really nutrient dense, but the one nutrient it's missing is vitamin B12. And that's not because there's something wrong with this diet, but vitamin B12 lives in the soil. And now that we wash our vegetables and fruits so much, there's just no B12 on it. And animals get it because they eat soil or other animals that eat soil. So I I do have them supplement B12. And I I check a B12 in pretty much all my patients when I first see them. And many patients have low B12 and they've been eating a typical Western diet. So it's, you know, it's it's a, an issue that comes up despite diet. So I haven't supplement that. I haven't started 500 micrograms three times a week empirically and I follow a level. And I've been encouraging people to supplement omega-3s lately because there are some issues with converting the ALA to omega-3, particularly in older white people. So they, they just take like a, a DHA, EPA, algae oil? Yeah, exactly. And I do that for cognitive health, not for cardiac health. Yeah, sure. Now, what about if there's a listener who perhaps is on statins? Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's plenty of people out there that are on statins and, you know, they've, they may have had a heart event or potentially were sort of early diagnosed and their doctor said, look, it's better off for you to get on a statin. We need to get your cholesterol down. They get on to the statins and, and whether it's been years or one year, whatever it is, their cholesterol is is down a lot, but they haven't changed their diet, right? Are there studies that have looked at that and looked at their outcome versus someone who takes those drugs plus changes their diet? Well, we can make a comparison. I don't have head-to-head studies like that, so I have to compare different studies. And let's let's compare two. There's Esselstyn's study where he took people with known heart disease, pretty advanced heart disease. By heart disease, I mean cholesterol blockages in their heart. And he had them eat a whole food plant-based diet without oil. So this is in about 200 people. And he followed them for about four years. And about 90% were compliant. And you know, about 10% were not. And so the 90% who were compliant eating a whole food plant-based diet with known cardiovascular disease they reported in their conclusion, they concluded a 0.6% event rate. And they, some of these patients were also on statins. And that's a very, very low event rate. And just as an aside, well, actually, this could be a good, good comparison. Of the 10% or so that were not compliant, they had about a 62% event rate. Wow. 0.6% compared to 62%. Compared to 62 Exactly. Now, I don't know exactly how many of them all were on statins, probably the overwhelming majority because this was a relatively recent study, but I, don't, I can't tell you that for sure. But keep in mind, they concluded 0.6%. So let's compare. And then he had that 62% in the 10% who were not compliant. So that's the, the 62% group. They just continued to pretty much eat what they were eating, which is yeah. probably an animal-based diet. Yes. Okay. Now, there's a study called the COURAGE study, which was a very important study in cardiology. It was published in about 2007. And in that study, they looked at people with stable cholesterol blockages, just like an Esselstyn study. Now, mind you, these are two different studies, apples and oranges, so just hypothesis generating. But in that study, I think it's about 4,000 people, I'm blanking, a few thousand, and they followed them for about four years. And they had stable cholesterol blockages, just like Esselstyn, and they randomized them to medications 
and you know, please be a little healthier versus medications, please be a little healthier and a stent. And the point of that study was to look at whether a stent in stable disease, not a heart attack, but stable disease was helpful. And after four or five years, there was no difference between the group that got a stent and didn't get a stent. So to me, what that means in stable heart disease, a stent is really palliative. But okay, so how is this at all related to Esselstyn's study? Well, in the COURAGE trial, where they encouraged people to eat more healthily, not a whole food plant-based diet, but you know, American Heart Association diet, and they were on maximal medical therapy, including statins, blood pressure pills, aspirin. They were very rigorous about that. In that study, they had about a 19% cardiovascular event rate with stable cholesterol blockages, including statins. In Esselstyn's study, in the compliant group, many of them very likely on statins, they concluded a 0.6% event rate. That's a big difference. Even if he's off by a factor of 10, 19 versus 6%, that's a big difference. Now, why is there that difference? I can't unequivocally tell you that, but both of those studies got LDL cholesterol levels into the 70s. So very similar LDL levels. So why are they different? Well, my hypothesis is that when you get to an LDL in the 70s on a path that includes a plant-based diet, yeah, it's good for your LDL cholesterol, but it's good for you for dozens and dozens of other reasons accounting for that difference. And that's what we have to keep in mind. I guess total mortality, if we're fixing one thing, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to avoid something else. Exactly. Which is where, I guess, changing you know, dietary intervention and lifestyle is hopefully not just addressing the one thing, but is more of a bigger picture uh, movement towards better health. 100% agree. We've gone super deep into all that stuff and I need to thank you for some tremendous job at explaining that. It's a very, very complex area, but the great thing is that the solution is very simple and, and you explained it really clearly um, about your recommendations in terms of food. How do you see the future looking? You know, medicine in the United States, students coming through, are we sort of making inroads here in terms of treating chronic disease Right now, it seems quite doom and gloom with the statistics of, of heart attack and type 2 diabetes. What's your outlook? I'm optimistic and pessimistic. I'm optimistic because I see change happening at the more senior level and particularly with younger students. I'm pessimistic because it's not happening anywhere quickly enough. So I'm both. We need to figure out a way to make the healthy choice the easy choice. And that's, you know, medicine, training doctors is one piece of a much larger puzzle. That's a real societal issue. You know, we have to make eating a salad or some, you know, yummy plant-based meal sexy. That's the cool thing to do. It's not necessarily like that right now, which is unfortunate. So medical education is one step of the way. And, and you know, a lot of the younger students now know about this stuff whether it's because of, you know, social media helping to spread the word or what have you, they are much more in tune with this than when I went through or, you know, my colleagues went through and they're pushing from the ground up. It's a real grassroots campaign. So that stuff is changing. You know, medical schools are beginning to weave this into their curriculum in all sorts of ways from cooking classes to lectures to electives. So it's cropping up more and more medical organizations like the American College of Cardiology, American College of Lifestyle Medicine, American Heart Association, et cetera, are putting more of an emphasis on 
nutrition, not necessarily plant-based per se, but on nutrition and a rising tide raises all ships. Nutrition, it's education, your exposure to it. You know, we have a conference at Montefiore now. It's our second year doing it, a preventive cardiology conference that is almost fully plant-based. It's a big part of our educational arm of our program. And my goal with that is I don't really want the Kool-Aid drinkers to come. Like I'm happy for them to be there. That's great. But my goal with this conference is not to get someone from 94% to 98% plant-based. I would really like to get the healthcare professional who is not even necessarily on their radar to sit there and be like, oh my gosh, this makes a lot of sense and help to move them along the path. That's my real goal with the conference and trying to do a variety of things to make that happen. You know, that's one thing. And there's many others. The Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, they have their conference. And so that kind of stuff is percolating through the medical system. Now, another issue in the medical system is, you know, big broccoli doesn't really impact that much. I mean, I'm sort of being facetious. You know, there's really no, there's very little reimbursement when it comes to prevention. Keeping, keeping people healthy and off medication. Exactly. So, you know, I can sit and talk to someone for 35 minutes all about plant-based nutrition and there's no additional revenue that comes into the hospital. And this is why I earn less practicing this way, but I think it's the right thing to do. But there are some changes afoot. There are these things called, at least in the U.S., called accountable care organizations. And this also may work well, you know, in countries with socialized or single-payer systems, which I think would be great. But Accountable care organizations, like for example, a hospital system gets $100 to take care of a person for the whole year. Now, whether you spend $6 or $106, you get $100. So you are highly incentivized to keep that person healthy. What's one way to do that? A healthier lifestyle, more nutrition. So that sort of, with that kind of financial incentive, healthier lifestyles are baked into the, uh, the medical system. So that's an important financial incentive. So there are programs like that. And actually Montefiore is a, is a leader in accountable care organizations. So that's, that's really. So great. you've already implemented something like that. So, well, yes, they're, they're accountable care organizations, but Montefiore is a huge system. So our plant-based program is not completely woven into the fabric of the whole system, but it's a part of it. And like for our, the inpatient aspect of our program, we have plant-based meals that you can order for the inpatients, probably to about 1,500 or 2,000 patient beds, those plant-based meals are also offered in the hospital cafeterias for visitors and faculty and staff members to eat. Which is so important because like I've been in hospitals recently and the food's terrible. Oh, yeah. You know? And the food for the visitors, there's, Bay Mar- there's a Bay Marie with, you know, all sorts of fried stuff and bacon and hash browns, things you mentioned before. Yeah, so it's it's really... We're pretty lucky that the food services has been so great. And they tell me that the foods, the, the plant-based foods sell out in the cafeteria, wow. which is terrific. They went meatless Mondays like a year and a half ago. We also have the documentary film Forks Over Knives playing on continuous loop in front of the inpatient TV bed. So you know how like the patients are in their bed, they have a little TV. Well, Forks Over Knives plays on continuous loop on that TV. I mean, they could watch another channel. That's the default. It's not the default, unfortunately. I wish it was, but all it just plays on one of the channels. You need someone to get in there early in the morning and change. Exactly. <laughs> but at least we have that. It's for free for the patients, the Spanish subtitles. So it's, it, you know, I can walk in a patient's room now and be like, go rah, rah plants, order the meal, put on forks over knives. And, you know, it's just way you go. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so there's changes in the medical system, accountable care organizations, education, but we need more societal level changes. Like it's great when someone like Beyonce comes out and tweets about, you know, I'm vegan or whatever for this month. And that's, it gets, 
you know, we could scream from at least I could, your, your podcast probably reaches millions and millions of people. Like I could scream from the rafters and maybe reach 15 people. One tweet from her, you know, <laughs> millions and millions of people. Well, we need to make it the sexy choice. And, you know, there are great documentary films that are out and coming out to support this. So there's, there's that aspect. There are, of course, at least in the U.S., there's the farm bill where billions and billions and billions of dollars go to supporting animal agribusiness. And, you know, maybe we just shift that to plant-based business. And there's probably a lot of, and we could do a, a gradual transition so that, you know, people whose livelihood depends on animal agribusiness could be transitioned away from that. There's a lot of creative ways that that could be implemented to minimize its short-term and maximize its long-term impact. But that's just not happening. I think there's, yeah, and there's probably a lot of resistance. I guess there's a lot of people with, with money to lose if, if those changes happen overnight. Yeah. But yeah, hopefully with a bit, you know, a little bit more pushing, we see some policy changes. Yeah, it's tough to make it through an Iowa primary as a vegan. You know? <laughs> so, but yeah, hopefully, exactly. So, the, but they could, if you creatively think about how to allocate those resources, you could hopefully minimize that impact. And if you look at food companies now, yeah, I mean, like big ones, sure, they have a very huge footprint in animal agribusiness, but they're really trying to grow their health category. Now, health is defined broadly, but they see the writing on the wall. And I saw a cool slide from this one very big food company that their traditional animal-based foods maybe was growing at 1% a year or flat, but their health category that was broadly defined was growing this time. Uh, no, it's a different, but they probably all have a similar. Tyson Foods invested into Beyond Burger, I think, or one of those burgers. But it's an important point you make because it also speaks to the point that we need to support companies that are having a go and trying to jump into the plant-based space. Might not necessarily be a plant-based company and they may have a history of selling animal products, but they need, sometimes they don't get all the support from the vegan purists. And I think they're, probably rightly so a bit scared to jump into the space. And if we want to see change fast as, you know, actually supporting some of these larger companies is probably a smart move. I mean, I agree. I think we really need to stop the circular firing squad. I, I mean, you know, so somebody goes 90% plant-based, they're not all the way in. Yeah. Would we like them to go 100%? Sure. But hey, it's so much better than 20%. And it begins to move the needle big time. And so if we're so like, I don't know, you have to meet these 15 checkboxes before you're in the club. Like we're never going to have a club. It's just going to fall apart. So I would try to keep the notion of the greater good in mind. And look, for my patients, anecdotally, circling back to the health aspect, when they tell me, I ask them like, what percent are you now whole food, plant-based, no oil? Are you 5%? Are you 95%? Like what percent? So when, whenever they tell me more than 50% anecdotally, like I have no way to know other than what they tell me, that's when I start to see benefits, clinical benefits, like cholesterol falls, they lower, they lose weight, they're starting to come off meds. Like if they go like, if they go, you know, 90% or more, I see the most obscene turnarounds you've ever seen. How long, how long does it usually take for you to see that? I mean, it's obviously case by case, but. But so the 50% is a cutoff. And if they really go like 90 plus percent whole food plant-based, no oil, I will begin to see changes within one to two weeks. And some of them eventually coming off meds or reducing meds? Oh, yeah. We've had people reduce 10, 15 medications, lose 90, 100 pounds, avoid bypass surgery, avoid stents, reverse their diabetes or high blood pressure. 
and on and on. And so many benefits they wouldn't necessarily have thought of. I mean, you know, skin issues getting better, back pain issues getting better. I mean, these are anecdotes, but I see it time and time again. And I mean, look, you know, it's great to reverse your high blood pressure. That's great. But it's, it's maybe perhaps more compelling for some people to say a lot of my patients, their erectile function gets better. And there's lots of pathophysiologic reason to think that that's the case. And that's, I think, an easier sell than saying, oh, you know, the, the high blood pressure, which you don't even feel, gets better. And within one to two weeks, I begin to see benefits. And people will often call who are on high blood pressure pills, tell me they feel lightheaded. And we talk about this beforehand. And that's because they're getting so much healthier. They don't need as many high blood pressure pills. So we start to reduce the dose. Usually within one to two week, weeks, their clothes start to feel a little bit looser. If they have really bad angina, which meaning chest pain because of cholesterol blockages in their heart, it starts to improve. They can, instead of walking like a block, they can walk a block and a half. And those kinds of benefits continue to accrue over time. And then oftentimes within three or four months, they may have re- reversed, depends how bad the diabetes is, but they may have reversed their diabetes or cholesterol is much lower, substantial weight loss. I also usually within one to two weeks, I hear sleeping better and better mental clarity. Those mental clarity, sleeping better, clothes looser, and blood pressure falling are the things that I usually see really, really quickly. It's incredible. It's incredible. Now, thank you before, but I need to, to just thank you for all your work doing. You are definitely making such a huge impact in this space. And the cool thing is you're, you're right in on the ground level, the work that you're doing with your team. You're no doubt saving lives. You're preventing surgeries, reducing medications, improving quality of life. It's, it's actually just amazing. I'm not quite sure how to describe it <laughs> any other way than that. But finally, I need to know your top three favorite places to eat out in New York. So maybe, maybe a couple of casual places, maybe one bit more sort of uh, fine dining, a little fancier. What, what are your go-tos? Oh, well, thank you. Uh, first, thank you for your kind words and thank you for the opportunity to, to speak with you today. The kind of impact that you're having with your podcast is, is amazing, touching so many lives. That's, that's a huge part of what thank you. we need. So places I like to eat, there's so many. And I got the chance to try uh, Organic Grill uh, with John Joseph and, uh, and Brian Wendell from Forks Over Knives a few months ago. And that was phenomenal. It's one of my favorites. I, I had John over here last night. It's, it's, it's his book there. PMA. <laughs> yeah, PMA. Right. Yeah, he's an amazing guy. <laughs> So I love that place. I love Candle 79. You know, you can, of course, get, you know, whole food plant-based no oil dishes there. And it's really quite delicious. They also have a Candle West on the West side and they have like a Candle Cafe. So they have a few places. I'll give you two other ones. Sorry. Sure. So it's more than, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's really generally four. Uh, I wasn't a math major. I can't count that well. <laughs> Peace Food is another place I, I want really to go there. like. Yeah. There's the one I go to is on the Upper West Side and it's it's great. It, it's um and they have some whole food plant-based stuff. There's a lot of kind of junk food vegan there stuff too. So if I'm ever in the mood for like a junk food vegan meal, I'll go. How there. often would you go junk food? I probably do that maybe like twice a month. Yeah. And uh the other place PS Kitchen is very good. That's in Hell's kitchen, I believe, like in the 40s. I think they give a lot of their, I don't know the full details of it, but they give a lot of their profits away to worthy causes. So that's really a wonderful cause. And they're also a a vegan restaurant, PS Kitchen. Okay. Awesome. I can't remember. I walked up um, the west side, actually, you know, more towards the top of Central Park. There's a place there in Harlem. Have you been up there? 
I, I, I do. I speak. Seasoned, it. seasoned vegan. I've heard of it. I haven't been there though. I went up there last time. It was, it was a fun experience. It was, a, it was a fun experience. I did the, the big walk around Harlem. Recommend um, to anyone listening to get up there and check it out. Excellent. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And Dr. Rob Osfeld, I look forward to having you back on the show in the future. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. And that's the end of this episode of the Plant Proof Podcast. Thanks so much for joining me again. I hope there are a few golden nuggets that you can take from this conversation, which can positively affect your own life. If you do have any friends or family members, colleagues, etc., that you think would enjoy this episode and the topics we discussed, please share the link. Together, we can make this world a healthier place by sharing real agenda-free content. If you have any personal feedback about the show, reviews on iTunes or stories on Instagram or private messages on Instagram, they're all greatly appreciated. I read them all and I share many of them with the Plant Proof community. Wherever you are, I hope you're having a really good day full of good vibes, good energy and delicious plant foods. Keep on smiling, plant friends. See you next episode.